Welcome to the Leadership Labs with DeepRec.ai, a podcast where we delve into the fascinating world of deep tech entrepreneurship, company founders, and venture capitalists. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly, and I'm thrilled to have you join us in this exciting journey. In each episode, we explore the minds behind groundbreaking technologies, the visionaries who dare to push the boundaries of innovation, and the investors who fuel the growth of tomorrow's game changers. Hey folks, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Leadership Labs podcast. Um, today's guest is is Robin, Robin Jose. Um, kind of gone, I would say, full circle here, Robin. We had a first meeting about a podcast six years ago, way back when, and your your times at WeFox. And I mean, since then, I've I've been on a an entrepreneurial journey. You've been on an entrepreneurial and leadership journey. So. So quite a lot's been going on, but yeah, how's how's things been going? And welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. Yes, uh, it's been a long time. I guess the first uh, first podcast that we, I guess we recorded was about six years back. I was uh, pretty much fresh in the VFOX at that time and stepped out of VFOX now uh, a few months back. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's been an exciting journey and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, great, great to have you. Obviously, someone who I've always uh, probably admired from a distance uh, since that first meeting, right? Um, but look, I know you sometime. Some people listening might not have had eyes on your profile, yeah? Um, let's take it back to the start, you know? What's what's your background been like? A little bit about you. What's What sort of led you on the journey? That, uh, that you've been taking? Sure. Um, so I would call myself as a techie turned uh, data whisperer, if I may, and a serial AI entrepreneur now, uh, having uh, now with a few multiple startups, a uh, few as co-founders um, and an angel investor. So I kicked off my journey as, uh, as a developer in Siemens. Uh, for the first decade, I was uh, a devout corporate employee taking leadership roles eventually in Cisco and EMC. In the mid-2010s, I decided to shift to data and analytics and machine learning, and it was a natural evolution towards AI from there. Uh, so eventually, I decided to move to the wonderful and chaotic world of startups, and uh, has been loving it ever since. In the past seven years, I was engaged in three startups in varying capacities, as I mentioned in the beginning, including being a co-founder. All three of them were in AI and in fintech. I worked in some very interesting ideas, including creating credit ratings for individuals using social media data and calculating credit ratings prediction for organizations uh, for asset management using uh, financial data as well as as well as well um, news coverage. So this was in 2018, 2019. I also worked on some very interesting projects using transformers than the precursor to GPT, working with Bert, Ernie, and... Uh, not Muppets, uh, Perth and Ernie, consumers, <laughs> and uh, similar tools. Um, in May, along with a co-founder, I also started my first uh, angel syndicate uh, to invest in startups, mostly focusing on software as a service startups with a B2B angle. Uh, so, yeah, in short, uh, I've been around the block when it comes to AI and startups. I've seen it all, uh, from the good to the bad to the ugly. Uh, still a believer. Never lost my passion for startups or using AI to solve some real-world problems. Nice, nice. I think what's, um, what's quite interesting about, about your, your background is it's, you kind of come in from a very 
business orientated understanding and you were then able to shift that business understanding into a data data leadership role uh, i mean look we can talk about that a little bit a little bit more as we jump into the podcast but on the road to entrepreneurship how did you find like obviously it's super beneficial having a business understanding add data into the mix and i guess don't want to say like you're like that uh that scene from um was it the hangover where it's all the maths going on in his head you're just starting to see stuff that other people other people don't don't see but on that like is it does does that drive you towards like investments starting businesses yeah, um, I, I wish there was those all those mental calculations going on in his mind where I can put it in a bubble and then show you. But then uh, <laughs> it, it never really works like that, doesn't it? Unless it's, uh, I guess, a Tom and Jerry cartoon or, uh, you know, something like that. Um, look, I think what I've realized is that the lines are blurred, right? So I, if you asked me this question 10 years back, I would have said that I'm probably a technical person with a business understanding. Uh, yeah. Right now, I don't know if I'm a technical person with a business understanding or a business person with a technical understanding, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little bit blurred. And I, I think that's that's great, right? So I also, along the way, when, when you start as a techie, you, you have one tool and that's technology. And then you look at the technology and say, hey, this is a great technology. What do I do with it? And... and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a wrong way to look at it, but that's just one way to look at the problem, right? So the other way to look at the problem is that this is, a, this is the business problem or this is the value that I want to provide uh, to, to my customers, to the community, to, to, to whoever it is right? that your startup is addressing. It could, be, it could be to the world if you're looking at something like climate control or energy crisis or something like that. And then you say, what's the right technology to address this problem or what's the most optimal way to address this problem? And I think over the years, as um, you know, it's also one of the nice ways to say I'm an old man. <laughs> but uh, over the years, over the decades, uh, what what I've learned is it's important to look at problems from both directions because you can have a great problem, but sometimes you don't have the technology or the infrastructure to actually solve the problem. The classic case that we can think about is um, Apple's uh, original attempt at Newton, right? Uh, the, 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 uh, the iPad of uh, the past, it just didn't work because there was no writing infrastructure to do it. It was not that uh, having, a, you know, having a tablet was a bad idea. It just the technology just wasn't there. So I think uh, if you approach the problem from multiple angles rather than just one fixed angle, it provides uh, a, a lot of benefits to uh benefits to uh to you as an investor or uh, or as a startup person or also oh, and also to your clients and your customers yeah because i look it's probably something that i would say i'd like to know just by knowing but it's it's not it's actually something that i've i know from doing i think probably 25 episodes here so far and you know, when I speak to tech people, tech people are like, yeah, really important that you can get in and understand that business piece quite early. You can understand your customers, your users, but not in terms like from a tech point, what they want from a tech point, but get them, as you mentioned, from that problem side. And I think that's 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 a really hard one to get. And, 
you often see it where probably again people who are serial founders found multiple businesses they can make that connection right and i think that's that's where i wanted to to sort of get in from you you know the scaling of a career from business background to co-founder splashes of data leadership and chief data officer in between like what what was that journey been like like i guess there's no simple one answer to this or one question where did you get the biggest learning experiences from the other side yeah so i think uh, one of the biggest uh, learning experience come very early in my career this was when i was in siemens and there was this very early technology which uh, we were i mean it was supposed to be a really path breaking project in terms of bringing internet to uh, to the mobile devices uh, so you might say why that was breaking because this was early 2000s, right? I'm really, uh, just, let, really letting the age show now. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, the mobiles were not even powerful enough to run the regular browsers, right? So we just start to think about technologies which uh, would help them access uh, the internet. Um, and again, uh, I don't want to go for the lo- uh, with the long story as to why it failed. It failed. That's a that that's a short version, right? But one of the biggest realizations I made at that point of time is that technology alone or just a brilliant solution alone does not solve the problem. The infrastructure and the ecosystem has to be there to make, I mean, the problem was the right problem to address. It was a relevant problem, right? Uh, but the product market fit uh, to make that happen, multiple things have to align. And one of those big pieces was the ecosystem and the ecosystem wasn't there. So that was a great learning. And um, I keep that in mind. Uh, at that point of time, I was a techie and I was focusing only on development, uh, development of the products. And but I kept that learning. And eventually, as I progressed through the career and uh, just as, as you said, uh, moved on to take more leadership roles in product as well as in data, I I used that knowledge to a good effect. Um, it, it helped me in multiple ways when I, multiple times when I had to take decisions, and I always. Uh, kept that in mind as to what makes product successful. Why, how do we get to product market fit? I really did not use the term product market fit at that point of time because I think that term came later. At least I understood that uh, term much later, but I was using that in my mind because I was always having this thought about it. Um, eventually, as um, I mean, as a chief data officer and playing a leadership role in terms of data, uh, over the past 10 years, I've rolled multiple AI products. Uh, to both in large corporations as well as in small uh, startups. And I've seen the huge impact that a strategic, well-executed AI project can have on the growth of a company. Yeah. I also worked in a few startups as an advisor, uh, or rather, I won't say work, but I, I contributed to a few startups as an advisor. And I've seen firsthand how AI can help startups and small and medium enterprises compete with large, more established companies. So. Uh, one of the biggest learnings that I have in the past few years is that AI has the potential to level the playing field and gives uh, firms a chance to compete with larger, more established companies by taking a completely new approach. And that's one of the reasons why I was very excited to work with startups as well as small and medium enterprises in terms of their AI use cases. And and, and uh, that's also one of the reasons why we're also looking at in terms of when we're investing uh, as a as a, as an as an angel syndicate and the company that I co-founded, 
We are also looking at companies who provide that edge when it comes to using data. Not necessarily, they don't have to be generative AI startups, which is all the rage now. I understand that every other startup is an AI, generative AI startup. They don't have to be, right? But you look at how data can give you a competitive advantage and can help you compete with the incumbents in the field. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. And again, I notice there's no formula, there's no recipe for what makes product market fit work or how much, how much do you invest? But is there, is there something that you've used as kind of like a guideline that if you could go back 10, 15 years ago and really give yourself a piece of advice, whether it's a percentage or dollar amount of budget spend towards understanding product market fit towards understanding customers instead of trying to get you know the all singing the all dancing aws kubernetes with all the whistles because that's what everyone wants now right but they might think yeah once the technology is great everyone's going to come running yeah i wish i had a silver bullet (laughs) (laughs) i wish um uh, unfortunately i don't know a single way that i can measure it uh, yeah. We all know that product market fit is important. And um, as a, a, a startup founder who pitched to various VCs, as well as uh, as an, an angel investor who hear a lot of pitches, I always have this question where I think about what makes really a team tick, right? Is that great founders uh, who have who have successful exits or has done great things in the past? They have great track record. Or is that the product? Um, or the problem that they're addressing to solve, or is that the market, right? So that all of these things comes together to create a product market fit. So which which one is the single most important one? Uh, is is that the market? So for example, I've seen enough, uh, you know, enough uh, articles from some of the top VCs in the field, which says, for example, the market trumps everything else. But then comes other articles which say, where it says a great founder will always find a way to game the market and you know beat the market so uh, a, a great founder is probably more important and then then comes the next set of articles where we, where they say if there's a great team right and it's a diverse team and they have various ideas then they come together and do great execution they will beat the market so look there's ideas and these are all we're talking about very well respected leaders in the industry and they themselves can't seem to agree that there's a single silver bullet or you know a single metric where we can measure product market fit by what we know is that there is something called as a product market fit and it works and when it comes together and when it fits it's magical uh, that being said uh, I think all all aspects of uh, all aspects of this great founders great teams having great product achieving uh, finding a good market to put that product in all of those are important pieces and they they, they, they combine um to to uh, to form a great product market yeah cool good and i like um again i get, i want to link this back to probably your more recent stuff in in advising in um your sort of serial entrepreneuring that you've been doing lately, uh, your investments that you've been making. When it when it comes to this, the pitches, pitches you're getting, pitches you're giving, whatever it might be, when you're evaluating people that you, you're meeting, not the magazines and the articles, right? Yeah. 
you're the the tech guy, the business guy. You kind of have the two hats. You can see, as I said, you can see these things that people probably don't see. Gaps in the market, gaps in the tech. Um, how do you bring business understanding of that to the people that you meet? Yes, I think um, in, in general, I look at it in two ways, right? One about one is about the go-to-market strategy, and it really depends on what stage I'm coming in. So as an angel investor, I'm coming in pre-seed or seed stages, right? So at this point of time, uh, we look at things You'll a little bit differently. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we look at things a little bit differently because at this point of time, we can't really evaluate the product, not yet, right? So the product is not there or at the best case scenario, it is a demo and nothing but a glorified demo, right? So that, that's what stage the product is in. So it really depends on the stage. So obviously that's not going to be the criteria when you're going to do a series C or a series D. Um, I don't know what stages are there or all the way now. It's like, I think it's called all the way to series F or even much further, right? So let's use all the alphabets out there. <laughs> but um, look, in the pre-seed stages, when we look at, right, we look at, we look at the team, we look at the founders, because at this point of time, we can look at the TAM possibility, right? We can look at the promise of the product, but we don't know anything about the product. We just have to have something which gives us the belief that the team can execute, which is an important part. As I say, very famously, ideas are worth nothing, execution is everything, right? So we need to make sure that the team can execute and uh, the, the capability of the founders is an important aspect that you look at. The dynamics in the team, in the start, uh, founding team is an important thing that we look at. And of course, we look at the market, right? So we look at the market and say, hey, is this a growing market? Is this a, a stagnant market or is it like, a, you know, a, a, a bad market? Uh, the, those things obviously uh, would, would have a play, uh, but even in markets which are stagnant, great founders with novel ideas of how to capture that market, cap, how to capture market share from the competition can do well. Right? So we have, uh, in fact, uh, made the mistake, I won't say the company, we have made the mistake of not uh, investing in a company because we thought the market was bad and the market was bad. It was a stagnant market. It was not a great market to be. But uh, the company went out to do great because they figured out a way to actually capture that market. They thought about a completely new way of addressing the problems of the market, which, uh, you know, which uh, the others haven't figured it out. So even with that, even with all that experience, uh, I can talk about decades of experience or whatever, but in the end, uh, we have to be uh, realistic about the possibility that once in a while you'll miss things. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it's not too many times. I mean, not too dissimilar, but I do like, I do enjoy watching the videos on YouTube of the, uh, the where are they now of Dragon's Den. <laughs> uh, just super interesting to see that they passed up on Ring Doorbell. Right at the time, they thought it was a terrible idea. But Ring Doorbell is, you know, probably the leaders in, in front door security cameras uh, and bells, which, I mean, it, I wasn't, be, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a market at the time, right? And that's, there we go. So they're obviously their afterthought of how they went to market was must have been absolutely amazing. Not, let's be honest, those guys don't often get too many things wrong. There's a lot of stories about them. I mean, not not uh, not this one, but uh, uh, such places, such such instances where great startups are not recognized. How Yahoo didn't want to buy Google at, or at least not Google, yeah, but yeah. 
at a million dollars or how Blockbuster, uh, you know, refused to buy Netflix. I don't know. It was like 30 million or something like that. Some very small number. right? Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. So, yeah, that gives us confidence that it's not just us that uh, that's missing things that's just very human. But yes, it's, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure at some point good. Skype could have bought Slack. Right? <laughs> Instead, Slack just came up out of nowhere like during COVID and, and was on Zoom as well, right? The two of them yeah. just came up in like the last couple of years to take over that, that sort of instant messaging. And, and I mean, look, there was so many different options to that as well. Um, whether they'll always follow like a cycle trade where some of them will be trendy and then there'll be a new one. You just don't know, like social media follows similar trends at times. Um, I think Zoom was a great story about the market, right? They're being at the right place at the right time and uh, <laughs> ISIS, right? So yeah, they were like, the product kind of sold itself. It's true. That's true. And it was it was a, a lot more reliable, right? They started doing Zoom parties during COVID and it was just, it just got very well marketed. Yeah, true. Um, there is some things that you can put metrics on from from early startups and as as a leader, they're hard to do, but as an investor, you will be critically scoring against these. And you, you mentioned two of them already. You mentioned people. You mentioned go to market. Um, how how do you see a people plan as a good thing or as a selling point or as a you know what I like these founders. I like their growth strategy going very simply does it come down to culture do you also evaluate the culture within that like how are you putting values on those because yes people investors are evaluating you on your people plan and your culture plan <laughs> yeah uh, so if you ask me uh, how do we factor in culture as part of the investment strategy then uh, the short answer is uh, it's very difficult for us to actually factor that in and that's not because culture is not important. Culture is super important. Right? So culture and values are the differentiation, and the, and it's a huge differentiation between checked-in employees versus checked-out employees. Right. So if, 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 I, if I'm coming into a new company, and then I say, hey, I totally get the, the, the goals of the company, the mission, vision, and values of the company, it's totally me. I, I could totally relate to it. It makes a huge difference in terms of how I work for that company. My 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 whole engagement level that with that company increases. My my passion for the product that I'm building increases, and that makes a huge differentiation um, in terms of the success of the company. If I can get uh, ten employees like that, that's all I need, right? So it just it, it it's a that that's a winning strategy right there. Nice. Can, the problem. I, I was actually I just want to ask a, a caveat to that. Even or, or is it something you would consider even early stage, seed, pre-seed? Do you look at retention plans for early employees? Like, are they getting in with ESOPs? Are they getting equity? Is that important super early or not so much? I mean, at seed stages, mostly you are just exposed to the founders, nothing more. Yeah. Right? So you you probably have a product demo, but most likely that's a CTO who is also ninety nine percent of the time a co-founder doing it. And that's all the exposure you have, right? So probably late seed stages, you get uh, to know more employees. And obviously, you would be interested in understanding uh, understanding if there is, uh, you know, there is a retention plan definitely in place for those employees. 
But what I was trying to, and, and this is an important part uh, because uh, also connected to my point is that it's a little bit difficult to evaluate at seed, uh, forget, forget pre-seed, right? So at seed stages as well, it's a little bit difficult to evaluate uh, the culture of a company. Because what, what, you're, what you're seeing is interactions between a few individuals who are the founders who are coming to see a VC. It's a little bit difficult for us to evaluate the culture of a company. And now we, one of the reasons why, why I said we look at the track record of the founders and see what they've started before is that then you get uh, you know, historical data of how, what companies that they started and what was the culture of that yeah. company, right? So this is definitely helpful. Can you ask... Can you, can you uh, do that with their corporate track record? No, because then you're not really influencing the culture of the company because the culture of the company is already set by, I mean, this is this, this has been a corporate that's been support there for some time, right? Um, so it's very difficult for us to, at, in seed and pre-seed stages, to really measure and calculate the culture, uh, culture of the company. And sometimes what we've seen is that even with some of those things, even with a percentage ownership of the shares, uh, if they're not having fun, they won't hesitate to leave at uh, early stages, right? So while I totally understand it's super important for us to have uh, key people retained in positions, it becomes a very difficult for us to actually calculate uh, to a reasonable degree if this is a successful strategy to retain them, because we still don't know much about the culture of the company. We can only make assumptions after speaking to, uh, to the team. Yeah, no, this, is a, this is a huge point, I think, right? Because some people and might be great, but they're not in it for the long term. They're not there for an exit, right? They, there can and should be, if there is, you need to find this out and you need to caveat it. Fun is one thing, but also some people might want lesser equity and a smaller bonus year on year because, let's be honest, you just want the money now. And some people will want that and that's just what you're going to face. So I think having that and understanding that about your people, and I hate to use the term flexi benefit, and give entrepreneurs more admin work that, that we already have. Um, but these things, if you have a long-term exit plan and that's what you're aiming for, there should be some sort of conversation like that. Other than that, what's the rule? 80 or 70, 30, 70% of your work is done by 30% of your people. You could lose that 30% of your people. You can lose your A players because, uh, look, I, I have often been in the scenario where I've worked with people that have walked away from six-figure uh, stock packages where they've been part of a business for four or five years and they don't see an end to that for them to actually ever get those value of those of those packages. So I see, it, I, I see it obviously from another side as well. And now I see it from my side as I want to retain the best people in my business. Um, so we're looking at the, the long-term and sort of bonuses in between not fully defined yet will be defined in 2024 but yeah that's it's gotta gotta have something to fit (laughs) in early stages or i mean it doesn't matter what stage it is you could give them a few million in uh, you know equity packages but unless they're convinced about the direction the company is going they might start thinking to themselves, well, it might be two million on paper right now but uh, it might be zero next year yeah right so just 
an equity package itself is not going to uh, is, is big, they're seeing the world right so they seen how how it works uh, how for now that's just paper money uh, so just in terms of sheer numbers might be able to hold on to some people but unless they're really convinced about the value and the strategy and the future potential of the company they're not going to stay yeah agreed um we spoke a little bit there about about culture and how you can't really put a value on that uh when a company is is pre-seed or too small um or if they've got no past founding founding experience i like to use the term culture architects and the culture architects are your people that if you're not in the room they will resonate what you say and what the business says and uphold all those values and everything that is important to you as a company when you're not around. I think it's very hard to put a culture plan in place to create those culture architects, almost impossible. But if you do, they're the type of people that at later stages, you want to bring those culture architects into your meetings, right? They can portray that. Everyone in the business is as passionate as these guys. They all they all absolutely love it. They're up for the fight. Well, I mean, I have to be honest with you that I haven't heard the term cultural architects before. Uh, so I need to look that up. Maybe I should have ChatGPT connected to this, uh, it, <laughs> this interviews in some way. But it sounds interesting. And uh, it's something that's connected to uh, mentorship or coaching. Which, I'm, which I truly believe in, right? So if you don't know about something or if you're not really, this is not your strong point, right? Really thinking about how to build an awesome culture for my company. As a founder, I would definitely look at uh, somebody who could mentor me or coach me in terms of doing this, right? And um, a culture architect, from that perspective, sounds very interesting. I would definitely be looking that up. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm keen on understanding this a little bit better. Yeah, it's a, it's a phrase that, it's it's not something that, I actually don't know if that's an official thing, by the way. I like to use the phrase as uh, basically people that will just live, breathe, and die by your values, by your business. They believe your plan. They believe in you, and they're they're there for the fight. So they will they will project that passion. If if they go to the pub to talk about their friends, they absolutely love talking about what they do for work culture architect right their friends now are like oh what do you do I, I really like your job i want to hear more about that company who knows their friend could be looking for a job be in the same area right and this is this is one small example of where a culture architect comes in and again i you can't exactly build that i think there's elements of it where you have to have the right people hard to say if people will always be culture architects right you talk about levels of disengagement that can actually happen over a longer period of time um, and really understanding people's motivators. So again, it's another large element of admin task to really get to know and understand your people. But trade-off at the end of it, if you can get it right, is, is you can start to produce culture architects and ultimately they will become your top performers within your business. Um, I think uh, the, the book, Hiring A Players, which I totally don't agree with, because they talk about you know throwing money at the wall and hiring people from Amazon and Google and DeepMind for 500k. I believe creating culture architects and safe learning environments in the business, you can actually harness the ability to create A players instead of hiring them. So I kind of put it on the same level as that. <laughs> Sounds interesting, and I do agree. I mean, we we tried um, one of the 
it's not really related to culture, but I would say it's related to data culture. Something that I had good experience with was, and we used to call them data evangelists, uh, but I guess the concept is very, very, very similar. You're trying to get this data culture across the company and not just my team, right? Not the data yeah. team, but then their company. And then we are, we are, we want everybody to start thinking of data as a, as a company asset, not, not an asset for finance or marketing or sales or technology teams, right? So across everyone. And we wanted everyone to use data for the decision-making process. And one of the best ways that we could figure it out was uh, we, could, we could actually get it done was to get ambassadors or evangelists across the various groups rather than we going and doing all this preaching about what data could do for them. Have them find some of the people who are really enthusiastic about it and um, start talking about what it could do for their department. And they listen to uh, so uh, so it's it's much more natural for people in finance to listen to Joe from finance rather than Robin from data yeah. uh, to say that, hey, that makes sense, right? So he's not trying to sell me something. He's, he's just tried it. He, he, he's one of us and he believes in it. So hence, I should believe in that as well. So I, I think as a concept, that makes a lot of sense. I had quite a bit of success with um, bring, you know getting this data culture in a company using evangelists from other teams, not necessarily our teams. Nice. I like that. Kind of kind of links up very well to what I was actually hoping to ask you about next is uh, while we're on the area of metrics um, and indicators. I'm a freak. I like to put communication in as a metric and have a communication framework. I've put that in place because I believe it can help to create, create accountability for me. <laughs> <laughs> right if i can prove myself to be accountable to the people on my team the people in the business that's that's what i want right and it, it really helps me do you have like do you use something like a communication framework and by that i mean we're talking simple things like stand-up meetings regular one-to-ones follow-up like what rigor do you have around them and i'm not asking this from like uh investment side but probably if we talk about You've got a wealth of experience from being in leadership roles, uh, now on the entrepreneurial road. You're definitely looking to to maximize your time and your success um, with how you communicate to your people. And let's be honest, having a dedicated communication framework with rigor built behind it is definitely a good way to do that. Yeah. And I have to admit that I don't have a fixed communication framework defined as to this is how I communicate. And I, then I look at it and I try to refine it uh, directly, but indirectly in my mind, I'm always looking at how I can optimize on the conversations, uh, the time that's spent on the communications and the conversations, as well as how to use them right. Because one of the key parts of being a leader, being an entrepreneur or even being an investor, uh, as a matter of fact, even being a dad, right? It's all about how often and how clearly you communicate and how do you Make the time count. It's not about um, one of the best things I learned as a parent is not about whether you're spending five hours, five hours with your son or your daughter, but rather uh, you know spending thirty meaningful minutes with them. Right. So when you're really being present with them and really do meaningful things with them. So um, of course over the period of time I've uh, I created certain habits as well as certain algorithms in my mind as to how I optimize it. None of them are what I call as uh, 
particularly ingenious things from my side. I just learn something from somebody and they say, hey, that makes sense. So I try to do this inbox zero, right? So just try to respond to the emails if I can respond to it as quickly as possible. Um, try to do that immediately if it needs to be done by somebody, delegate and so on. I am a true believer in teams coming together, especially teams who are working very closely together, coming with uh, coming up with a short stand-up every day to just talk about very simple, talk about you know a typical Scrum kind of core. It doesn't have to be Scrum core to be clear, right? To just say what am I working on and uh, am I blocked to something and what I'll work on now. Uh, super helpful for me. Uh, as even as the team scaled, right from uh, even for even when I had like very large team sizes of nearly 300 people in large corporates, the right way of setting up those meetings, the daily daily scrums, if I can say that, uh, helped a lot. And finally, I do believe very strongly in follow up. Whether it's following up on the time that you promised you would follow up, or following up, uh, or or following up even when you haven't promised time, right? So follow up at, at reasonable intervals so that you go back to the person and ask what they need and try to provide uh, what they need in terms of information. So all those things are things I use. Of course, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something. I haven't written anything down, right? But <laughs> I, I go by uh, experience. Uh, I also try to figure out what works and what doesn't. But I do agree with you that uh, a, a large part of our success comes from uh, connect, uh, from 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 the interactions that we have with other people because as as a single person I can't do anything I can't get anything done right so it's all about connecting to the other people talking to them exchanging ideas uh, getting work done doing the work and communication is a huge part of that so it's super important for us to be systematic methodical and smart about it yeah no appreciate that good good insight something that yeah I'm 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 always I'm always trying to think, particularly around the follow-up, right? If you have a one-to-one or a meeting, I, I do try, and I don't know if it's too much. I appreciate what people's feedback is on this. I'll try to sort of immediately, within 10 minutes of the meeting, send up my summary notes and then book in the next meeting from when it should be. Because to me, then it's given objectives, clear plan, clear time frame. So it's ultimately creating a smart goal a smart target um <laughs> probably a bit much <laughs> but um look you've come through different size of businesses now um robin definitely from you know hyper growth startups i mean we fox must be are they are they they're obviously one of the most successful unicorns in, in Germany. I know there's another bunch of accolades that they've obviously achieved in that time that you are also there. So that obviously comes with with different goals of headcount, of revenue, future sales forecasting, stuff like that. And I want to sort of put that in to, let's say, other businesses, investment businesses that you're looking at um businesses that you've co-founded you and i both know it's some cases some people put their hang their hat on headcount as a success metric right some people put it in as revenue some people put it in as engagement some people put it in as future sales pipeline um i mean again no silver bullet for this (laughs) 
where do you see all these in importance? You know, what do you what do you look for as good indicators for success? Yeah, as you rightly said, there's no single way that I can measure it and say this is one single KPA that helps uh, in terms of measuring success. Revenues are important. We need to see uh, there's traction in revenues, right? But uh, then I could also be scaling my revenue by 10x, uh, but still maybe unsuccessful. So I could be going from 10 million to 100 million a year. And I say, well, I did 10x, but that could be by just burning money and yeah. throwing a lot of uh, cost in customer acquisition. My CAC is through the roof. I'm just burning all my money, maybe more than 100 million in terms of just marketing. And then, uh, well, I did scale my revenues, but this is not a sustainable thing. So that everyone knows this and we have see, still seen companies doing it, right? And so again and again. So that's just one example, right? So yes, it's it's, it's important to look at some of those things. Uh, revenues are super important. Uh, it's important to see how we are growing as a company yeah, as in, the, in, in terms of headcount. That's a good indication of uh, what we see as future prospects of the company. We need to see the future sales, how we're forecasting it and how accurate we are, how engaged our users are with the product. Um, we could also look at, uh, especially for a technology team, uh, we can look at the output they're creating, right? What um, uh, I'm always uh, you know, amazed by how much uh, output uh, OpenAI puts out there. Every week, at least the last uh, few weeks, they seem to be making a new announcement, a new feature. Uh, this week, they just uh, put everything together and said, hey, here's a multi-model thing for you, right? So we just put everything together, you can use it. And the last few weeks have been nothing but Stella. So they had Dali, they had, uh, you know, they had everything come to the app and, and so on and so forth. It's just, just been crazy, just as an example. So all of those things are important and it's very difficult to for me to just pick one and say, and say, hey, this is an ultimate predict, uh, you know, a predictor for success. But if, if I had to just talk about one aspect, I would always focus on the value. Right? So uh, to me, uh, and, and I think it's a little bit of a repetition of I was just, uh, what I was saying before, because in a way, value is, if you have value, you have product market fit. Yeah. Right? So product market fit is the holy grail. Uh, of uh, fitting a product to the market. So that, that's holy grail. This is what every startup founder is looking for. Uh, but in the end, I mean, I could be just a single person and, uh, you know, having the same revenues as a hundred people company, then why not just be that single person, right? That's obviously a lot more effective. I would rather be a 10 people company doing uh, 10 million in revenues than, you know, a 500 people company doing a hundred million in revenues. Why then? Because I can then hire some of the best people in the world and then I pay well for them. They're happy, a lot less wasted energy and so on. So some of the most, I guess, most famous example was WhatsApp and they were acquired by um, Facebook. I guess it was Facebook at yeah. that time. All right. So there were just about 50 people and I think they got a valuation of, I don't remember now, 12 billion, 19 billion. I don't remember, but that's 19 billion for 50 people, right? So that's one crazy valuation. Um, wow. In the end, what worked was product market fit. Yeah, so people are still using WhatsApp. I think their numbers are still going up. And there's a product that's given free, absolutely free. I don't pay anything for it. Of course, there, there are business customers for it. I understand that. But they, do, they did something about it. They found product market uh, fit. They found the value. So to me, the value is the one that I would really focus on. If I'm providing value and my value and the value that I provide to my customer, who are my customers, keeps increasing. And they just can't stop uh, stop using my product. 
then I'm doing something right. And everything else will fit into place. Nice. Nice. I like that. I like that a lot because I was actually going to ask, like even putting it on like customer retention models, because specifically you said acquisition cost per customer, right? I was going to be like, great follow-up question if we're talking retention, but you've, you've worded it in a different way here and called the value, which I actually like a lot more, to be honest. Retention is a great way of measuring value. I think retention is, a, I mean, retention and churn are one of the things that we would look at. I mean, we don't look at it in a pre-seed or a seed, but if if I have to look at something in, a, you know, a series A or even a C, uh, or, or later, right? So series B or series C, I definitely look at churn. I would definitely look at retention. So some of the key measures, because that shows that there is value. Yeah. Customers are staying. I mean, there's... A- uh, otherwise... Look at customer increasing customers, just like we said before, right? You can throw money at the problem and then you can say, I'm going to increase my marketing course and I'm going to get new customers for every customer that's churning. But that just hides the the aspect that user is not finding value. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was literally I was gonna say something similar, right? There's there's only gonna be so many customers out there willing to change. If you get them, if you get a piece of them, and then you're constantly losing them. I mean, I would hate to say it, but I'm pretty sure a very ref- it's something that would definitely reflect that would probably be your trust pilot in Google reviews. <laughs> um, coming to the end, I'm going to finish up with three quick uh, uh, fire questions for you there, Robin. Um, first one, if you were to do it again, what would you do differently? And I mean, you can talk about your career, entrepreneurship, investment. And when I say do it differently, what would you teach yourself? I would focus less on technology and more on solving business problems. Nice, nice. Um, three non-negotiables that you set for yourself as a leader. Integrity. Um, that's number one. Nice. Number two is responsibility towards the team. I have to explain that a bit. Uh, so you're, to me, a leader is responsible for the progress of the team. And sometimes when even they are no longer part of the team, Leadership brings certain privileges, but it also brings certain responsibilities. So um, if, if if somebody who left my team is calling me after five years and asking for a referral as an example, right? I'm not doing them a favor by doing it. I'm, it's my expected as part of the leadership. That's just an example. Yeah. So it's not just to people who are on your team. Of course, that's you're responsible for that, but you're also responsible for people who worked with you in the past. I see that as a responsibility that comes with the leadership. And the last one is vision, because your job as a leader is to build and drive towards an inspiring vision. Your team needs that from you. It's not optional. So those would be three things, integrity, responsibility towards the team, and vision. Nice, nice. Um, last one, uh, content that you would recommend for other listeners or entrepreneurs, whether it be books, podcasts, blogs, articles? We'll start with books. Um, well, if I had to pick one, shoot, I think it's it's difficult for me to pick one. I'll pick two. Uh, the first one is uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I don't think I have to explain this. Everyone yeah. knows uh, Zero to One. Great book. The other one I really liked was The Hard Thing About Hard Things. This is from Ben Horowitz, from Anderson Horowitz, right? So it's about scaling and building and building successful businesses. I found it to be super on point and uh, was, uh, it, it was it, there was a lot of experience that's written in those days. In terms of podcasts, one thing I can easily name as my favorite is uh, 20 VC by Harry Stebbings. I listen to pretty much every episode. Nice. Nice. Um, Robin, that 
thanks us for the time. I'd like to thank you so much um, for your great input, your great questions and answers. And anyone who doesn't know him, check out Robin on LinkedIn. I'm going to link his profile in the bio. But Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Anthony. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) That concludes another enlightening episode of the Leadership Labs podcast. If you found today's episode thought-provoking and informative, be sure to subscribe to the Leadership Labs on your preferred podcast platform or on YouTube. Thank you once again for joining us on this journey through the Leadership Labs. Until next time.